Hi there, listeners. Welcome back to another installment of In Summation, The Final Word, a podcast for inquisitive minds on real-life courtroom drama. I'm your host, Paul Townsend, and in this episode, we tackle a fairly controversial issue. I've said this several times in the podcast, but I'm going to repeat it again here. This is not a podcast about my personal issues on topics which are related to these cases. I'll freely give my opinion on things like lawyer strategy and legal argument, but the goal of this podcast is not for me to provide you with my political or sociological philosophy and ask you to agree with me. To that end, I try and remain as unbiased as possible when I present the ideas and arguments which come through in these cases. Anything which listeners interpret as me giving a position on a moral or ethical argument is largely unintentional, and today is no exception. If anybody does want my personal opinion, feel free to email me at insummationpodcast at gmail.com, and I'll have a discussion, but I'd like to keep the podcast itself issue neutral. Today we're tackling the preeminent case of physician-assisted suicide in America's history. This is the story of a trial of a doctor whose name has become synonymous with aiding people in orchestrating their own death. Today we examine the state of Michigan versus Dr. Kevorkian. I've found that pretty much everyone recognizes the name Dr. Kevorkian, and nearly everyone knows that he helped patients commit suicide and was charged with murder for it. But that's more or less where the vast majority of people's familiarity with this case seems to end. The truth is that both Dr. Kevorkian's life and trial were truly fascinating. To understand what Dr. Kevorkian did, why he did it, and why he was prosecuted for it, it's imperative that you understand what drove him as a person, what his beliefs were, and how strongly he held them. Whether or not you agree with his methods, there is no question that Dr. Kevorkian was a man who lived his life by a set of principles which he would not bend for anyone. Let's examine how he came to hold these positions. Murat Jacob Kevorkian was born May 26, 1928, in Pontiac, Michigan. His parents were Armenian immigrants who were originally from the area which is Turkey today. His father, Levan, fled the area in 1912 due to increasing political oppression, and he was actually smuggled out of the country by missionaries. His mother, Setenning, left in 1915 in the midst of horrific Armenian genocide. Both immigrated to the United States from the same geographic region, and both ended up in the same Armenian community in Pontiac, Michigan, where they met. Murad Jacob, who went by Jack, was the second of three children. His parents were blue-collar, his father worked in the automotive industry, and his mother took care of the children at home. The family was strict Christian and very religious. Jack was dutifully taken to church every week, but by the time Jack Kevorkian was 12 years old, he had started to learn on his own about the Armenian genocide in the ancestral home of his family and how many family members had been killed there. He determined quickly that there was simply no way that an all-knowing and all-powerful God would let such an atrocity happen, and as a result, he became an atheist. From his early childhood, it was clear that Jack Kevorkian was exceptional. While in junior high school, he taught himself German, Russian, Greek, and Japanese. He still managed to graduate from high school at 17 with honors. Seven years later, he had completed both college and the University of Michigan Medical School. 
and that would already be an impressive feat. But on top of that, the first year of his college career, he was an engineering major. He didn't switch to pre-med studies until he was a sophomore. To ensure he could obtain the requisite number of credits, he essentially took double the course load of a typical student to still graduate ahead of schedule and still with honors. But like so many other people gifted with exceptional intelligence, Jack Kevorkian struggled to connect with peers. He was often alienated. He found relationships to largely get in the way of his studies and didn't put a whole lot of effort into maintaining them. In 1952, Jack Kevorkian graduated from the University of Michigan Medical School and officially became Dr. Kevorkian. The following year, in 1953, the Korean War broke out and Dr. Kevorkian served 15 months as an army medic in Korea. Some of the biographers that I've read have hinted that seeing war firsthand really jump-started Dr. Kevorkian's obsession with death. I personally think it's impossible for someone like me to fully grasp the horrors of what an army medic would have been exposed to in 1950s Korea. This was the first armed conflict where chemical weapons were used in any significant amount. So in addition to gunshot wounds, explosive devices, and sickness tearing through hastily set up mobile infirmaries, army doctors and medics were also dealing with the fallout of chemical and biological warfare. During his time in the Korean War, Dr. Kevorkian did become keenly interested in death and the act of dying. And after he returned from his tour, this fascination continued during his residency at the University of Michigan Hospital in the mid-1950s. He developed research into the act of dying by frequently visiting the terminally ill patients and photographing their eyes in an attempt to pinpoint the exact moment of death. He believed that by doing so, he would be able to distinguish death from fainting, shock, or going into a coma, and hence he would be able to know whether or not resuscitation measures were a waste of time. During an interview, when asked about this research, Dr. Kevorkian told the reporter, quote, My number one reason was because it was interesting. My second reason was because it was a taboo subject, end quote. Up until this time, most colleagues accepted Dr. Kevorkian as a brilliant but mildly eccentric doctor who had some strange research pursuits. People generally did not consider him an especially controversial figure. But that all changed in 1958, and from then on, Dr. Kevorkian was considered quite an extremist. In 1958, about 40 years before his famous assisted suicide trial, Dr. Kevorkian authored a paper and made a presentation to the American Association for the Advancement of Science. In the paper, he advocated for using criminals on death row as guinea pigs for experimental medical procedures while they were still alive. He termed his methods terminal human experimentation. He argued that this was a way for convicted death row inmates to provide a valuable service to humanity, as the state killed them. In an effort to make this presentation palatable, Dr. Kevorkian suggested that these experiments, which again would commence while the individual was still conscious, would be painless and would ultimately result in death, but would provide valuable information on the effects of certain experimental procedures. Now, unsurprisingly, this was not a popular position to take in the medical community, and earned Dr. Kevorkian the moniker Dr. Death, a nickname which would stick with him for the rest of his life. 
Once this proposal and paper were discovered by the media, and given a level of focus and attention that the University of Michigan Hospital was uncomfortable with, they cut ties with Dr. Kevorkian and he was dismissed. He was, however, able to quickly secure a position with Pontiac General Hospital, a facility which was significantly more willing to entertain some of Dr. Death's strange experimental pursuits. We don't have time to get into all of the macabre experiments that Dr. Kevorkian and his research team were doing in the 50s and 60s, but one is important to note. Dr. Kevorkian had heard that a Russian medical team was working on transfusing blood from corpses into living patients, and he wanted to try it for himself. And he was actually able to achieve a good deal of success. He pitched the idea to the Pentagon as a useful method for emergency transfusions in Vietnam, which was, at that point, raging. In fact, Dr. Kevorkian put all of his research eggs into this basket. The Pentagon disagreed, and no research money was provided to him. Essentially, his funding at that point was cut. During the 1960s, Dr. Kevorkian became somewhat nomadic. He traveled across the country from hospital to hospital. He published nearly three dozen journal articles during this time period on his philosophy concerning death. Professionally, however, he was struggling. After going around the country, he set up his own clinic near Detroit, Michigan. It failed. He then moved to Long Beach, California, where he worked as a pathologist, which is a doctor or scientist who studies the causes and effects of diseases. But he quit after an argument with the chief pathologist at the hospital. By 1970, he was unemployed, had broken off an engagement, and was failing in his attempt to reignite his campaign for death row inmates to participate in medical experimentation. He stayed this way for over a decade. He lived alone, sometimes in his car, lived off canned food and social security payments. In 1986, Dr. Kevorkian really began his crusade for assisted suicide, or euthanasia. At that time, he had read that doctors in the Netherlands were giving people lethal injections to help them die peacefully, and he immediately set his mind to bringing that practice to the United States. He began writing articles again, focusing on how euthanasia benefits individuals as well as society. He created a suicide machine, which he termed the Thanatron, Thanatron translates to instrument of death from Greek. He spent about $45 for a board, a few bottles, and syringes, put them together in a three-part process. Once a person was hooked up to the machine, they would get injected with a saline solution, followed by a painkiller, followed by a fatal dose of potassium chloride, which is a poison. It was an exceedingly simple machine and terminally ill people were able to use it themselves without the direct assistance of a doctor after they were hooked up. Dr. Kevorkian tried for years to get articles about the Thanatron published in scholarly medical journals, but they were all rejected. Despite the failures to get his articles and papers circulated in the medical community, he eventually became the focus of some national attention for an alternative proposal to set up what he termed obitoriums, which were facilities where doctors could help terminally ill patients end their lives. The response from both the medical community and society at large was unsupportive. Up until 1990, Dr. Kevorkian's stance on euthanasia and the application of the Thanatron had been theoretical. It had been in the abstract. 
But a woman named Janet Adkins changed that. Adkins was a member of an organization called the Hemlock Society, a group dedicated to advocating for voluntary euthanasia for terminally ill patients. At the age of 54, she was diagnosed with a terminal disease and became quite ill. She had read about Kevorkian's Thanatron in the media and found a way to reach out to him. They met in a public park, inside Kevorkian's Volkswagen van. He inserted an IV into her arm, and she administered the three syringes of the Thanatron. Within five minutes, she passed away. Dr. Kevorkian was immediately the center of a national spectacle. The state of Michigan charged him with the murder of Janet Atkins, but later dismissed the case because Michigan had not really clarified the legality of assisted suicide. Since the law appeared vague on the topic, the prosecutor's office decided they weren't going to press the case. In early 1991, a Michigan judge issued an injunction on using the Thanatron and barred Dr. Kevorkian or anyone else from utilizing it. Later that year, the state of Michigan suspended Dr. Kevorkian's medical license. Now, at this point, I don't think it would be a stretch for a reasonable person to conclude that to continue assisting people committing suicide could land someone in some trouble in Michigan. Perhaps a less principled person may have concluded at this point that pursuing a different line of work was an intelligent choice. So what did Dr. Kevorkian do? Without a medical license, he no longer had the unfettered access to the medications he wanted to use, so he created a new machine called a Mercitron, which delivered carbon monoxide through a gas mask and continued to assist people who contacted him for help with euthanasia. Unsurprisingly, in response to the national attention Dr. Kevorkian was now routinely receiving, the Michigan legislature quickly passed a bill which outlawed assisted suicide. Dr. Kevorkian completely ignored the law and continued what he now considered his life's work. He was prosecuted four times in Michigan between 1994 and 1997 for violating the assisted suicide ban. He was ultimately acquitted in three of the cases, and the fourth case resulted in a mistrial. He was not retried after the mistrial. The case was simply dropped. His lawyer, Jeffrey Feger, was able to convince a jury to acquit, or at least not to convict in one case, on the grounds that Dr. Kevorkian was not criminally assisting suicide if he simply administered medication with the intent to relieve pain, even if it did increase the risk of death. After the fourth failed prosecution, Dr. Kevorkian was interviewed. One would have expected him to be happy and rather upbeat about not being sent to jail for criminally assisting suicide. I have never had a client get upset about being acquitted or even a mistrial. But Dr. Kevorkian was extremely disappointed that he kept winning. He told the reporter that he wanted to be imprisoned in order to shed light on the hypocrisy and corruption of society. I don't pretend to speak for everyone, but I'm pretty confident that this is a view that would not be taken by the majority of the population. But Dr. Kevorkian was serious about his desire to make this a real issue and to showcase what he felt was a real failing of society. In 1998, the state of Michigan passed new legislation on assisted suicide, closing the loophole that Dr. Kevorkian and Jeffrey Feger had been using, and it imposed a maximum five-year prison sentence if a person was found guilty. Completely undeterred, Dr. Kevorkian gave permission to CBS to air a tape he had made 
of a lethal injection given to a man named Thomas Uke. Uke was in the final stages of ALS, or Lou Gehrig's disease. On September 17, 1998, on video, he obtained informed consent of Uke to hook him up to the Thanatron. Despite his medical license being revoked, Dr. Kevorkian was still able to procure the medicines he needed for the Thanatron without too much difficulty. What ultimately made the uke euthanasia different than any other was that this was the first and only time that Dr. Kevorkian actually pushed the Thanatron button himself. According to Fieger, Dr. Kevorkian assisted in the deaths of 130 individuals between 1990 and 1998. This was the only time that the person him or herself did not activate the mechanism which ultimately led to their death. In the tape, Dr. Kevorkian then dared authorities to prosecute him or try and stop him from continuing. The tape aired on the CBS news program 60 Minutes on November 22, 1998. A few days later, he was charged with second-degree murder for the killing of Thomas Uke. The case went to trial in March 1999. At the end of November to March is around three and a half months. It is unheard of to go to trial on a murder case three months after charging a person. Typically, it takes well over a year, often two. But as you can imagine, this case is not like most other murder cases. Not only was the act in question caught on video, it was recorded by the defendant, and it was recorded specifically as a challenge to law enforcement. Dr. Kevorkian had actually goaded prosecutors into charging him. Another reason the case was able to go to trial so quickly was that Dr. Kevorkian ultimately elected to represent himself at trial. While in the past Jeffrey Fieger had been his trial counsel, Fieger viewed the 60 Minutes tape and interview as a disaster. In addition to speaking about his role in causing Uke's death, Dr. Kevorkian offered a host of other controversial opinions which Fieger thought were unlikely to help him in a trial. Dr. Kevorkian claimed that his god was Johann Sebastian Bach, and the god that most Americans worshipped was merely an invention. He compared American hospitals to Nazi concentration camps and called the Supreme Court corrupt. When Fieger told Kevorkian that he was going to try and get the tape and interview excluded from the trial, he was fired. Prior to the decision to represent himself, Kevorkian was assigned alternative counsel. While Fieger was an exceptionally astute attorney, this new attorney, David Garosh, was nothing short of an out-and-out disaster, even though he only represented Dr. Kevorkian for a brief period. Dr. Kevorkian was initially charged both with murder and violating the assisted suicide law. Garosh moved to drop the assisted suicide charge. He believed that if a jury was presented with the decision of only either convicting on a murder charge or acquitting, that they would acquit. Garosh was worried that a jury might not want to necessarily convict him of murder, but may be similarly uneasy letting him go with nothing, so they may compromise and convict him of the assisted suicide charge, which would still result in jail time. This was a horrible decision. Now, I can understand the strategy behind pushing a jury to make an extreme decision, taking away their ability to split the baby and tell themselves that he did something wrong, but they didn't want to convict him of murder, so they all agree to settle on the lesser charge. I get that. I don't necessarily agree with it, especially when the evidence against your client is so bad as it was in this case, 
but I at least can see the thought process behind what Garrosh wanted to do. But had Garrosh actually thought about the defense that Kevorkian was planning to make, it should have been immediately clear that moving to dismiss the assisted suicide charge was strategically a rather poor decision. As we've discussed in the past, for a prosecutor to convict any person of any crime, they have to establish each element of the crime beyond a reasonable doubt. Every crime from murder down to stealing a candy bar from a convenience store has certain elements. What those elements are is a factor in determining what evidence is relevant at the trial. When we discuss the trial strategy, I'll explain the importance of this. But for now, just know that the Honorable Judge Jessica Cooper recognized that moving to dismiss the assisted suicide charge would be a strategically bad decision and asked Grosh if he was sure he wanted to go forward with it. Grosh indicated that he did, and the prosecutor dropped the charge on the spot rather than contest it. He also recognized what the implications were. Shortly thereafter, Kevorkian decided to represent himself. In the legal profession, there's an old adage that a man who represents himself has a fool for a client. And that certainly seemed to be the case here. Though Garrosh's representation was less than stellar, Dr. Kevorkian would have done well to stick with Jeffrey Feger. One of the reasons that, as Americans, we have not only the right to counsel, but the right to the effective assistance of counsel, is that the law is complex and legal proceedings are nuanced. There have been plenty of times where Hollywood has created brilliant criminals who opt to defend themselves and do a capable job of it in the courtroom, but in real life, that is extremely rare. The reality is that experienced attorneys know things like the rules of evidence, relevancy, and elements of a crime. Contrary to what movies and television shows tell us, it's not as simple as just informing the judge that you have something you are placing into evidence or calling any person to testify about whatever you want the jury to know. Typically, people represent themselves when they plan on doing things that an attorney either will not let them do or at the very least will strongly counsel them against doing. We see this mainly with defendants who are trying to use their trial to make a point. Dr. Kevorkian is a great example of this. Another was Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. People who have a message that they want to convey and who know that their attorney will focus on the case rather than the message will occasionally decline a lawyer and proceed on their own. And that's what Dr. Kevorkian did. Though Judge Cooper did order that Garrosh sit by him as standby counsel in the event that during the trial he decides he wanted it. Judge Jessica Cooper was a no-nonsense jurist who was determined to keep control of the courtroom and not let Dr. Kevorkian turn his trial into a banner for his cause. She had actually presided over one of the four previous Kevorkian trials, so she really knew what she was in store for and how to handle it. The entire trial took place over just five days, March 22nd to March 26th of 1999. In addition to the tape, Prosecutors called the medical examiner to establish that Uke had, in fact, died, and the two police officers who'd responded to the 911 call about Uke's death. And that's it. Simple, clean, effective. Although not legally required to do so, Dr. Kevorkian put on a defense. As a man with a cause who finally seemed to have been given his pulpit, he wanted to testify and call witnesses, but he found himself largely hamstrung. Dr. Kevorkian wanted to testify about mercy, about ending pain and suffering, about the dignity of making the decision to end one's life on one's own terms. He wanted Yuke's family to talk about his suffering and his pain, 
But all of that testimony would only have been relevant to the charge of criminally assisting suicide. It was, according to Judge Cooper, completely irrelevant to the issue of murder. So she prohibited Dr. Kevorkian from giving any testimony about why he had done what he had done. His intentions were not to be a part of his trial. Kevorkian attempted to call Uke's family members to talk about the suffering, but Judge Cooper determined that that also would only have been relevant for criminally assisting suicide and would not let him call them to the stand. Kevorkian testified on his own behalf. He compared the injection into Uke with amputating a patient's leg to stop the spread of a disease. Judge Cooper interrupted him and told him he was describing a mercy killing. He responded by saying, quote, I call it medical service from a dedicated physician for an agonized human being. My intent is not to kill. It is to do my duty as a physician, end quote. At that point, Judge Cooper cut him off from any further testimony on the topic. Getting visibly frustrated with his inability to get his message out, Dr. Kevorkian could do little more in his own summation than compare himself to Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks. He was essentially arguing at that point for jury nullification, which means that he asked the jury to find him not guilty, even though they believed the prosecutor had proven the case beyond a reasonable doubt because they felt the law was unjust. In his summation, the prosecutor, John Skrzynski, compared what Dr. Kevorkian did to murder for hire and compared the practice to the horrors of Nazi Germany. He ended his summation by saying, quote, There are 11 million souls buried in Europe that can tell you that when you make euthanasia a state policy, some catastrophic things can evolve from that, end quote. The jury started deliberating on Thursday, March 25, 1999, and though they failed to reach a decision that day, they came back the next morning and convicted Dr. Kevorkian of murder. At the sentencing, Judge Cooper said the following right before sentencing him to 10 to 25 years. Quote, This is a court of law, and you said you invited yourself here to take a final stand, but this trial was not an opportunity for a referendum. The law prohibiting euthanasia was specifically reviewed and clarified by the Michigan Supreme Court several years ago in a decision involving your very own cases, sir. So the charge here should come as no surprise to you. You invited yourself to the wrong forum. Well, we are a nation of laws, and we are a nation that tolerates differences of opinion because we have a civilized and nonviolent way of resolving our conflicts that weighs the law and adheres to the law. We have the means and the methods to protest the laws with which we disagree. You can criticize the law. You can write or lecture about the law. You had the audacity to go on national television Show the world what you did, and dare the legal system to stop you. Well, sir, consider yourself stopped. End quote. After the trial was over, and it was clear what a terrible idea it had been to seek dismissal of the assisted suicide charge, Dr. Kevorkian asked for a new trial on the grounds of the bad advice he had received from Garrosh. That request was denied. Despite being sentenced to a 10 to 25 year term, in 1999. By June 2007, he had been released on parole, and in 2008, he announced his intention to run for Congress in Michigan as an independent. He received 2.6% of the vote in his district. While in prison and after, Dr. Kevorkian never stopped advocating for euthanasia as a humane way to end lives. He died June 3, 2011, 
after being hospitalized with pneumonia. There are two final things I want to mention about the strange case of Dr. Jack Kevorkian. The first is that while it is claimed that Dr. Kevorkian assisted roughly 130 people and their lives between 1990 and 1999, a thorough review of those cases has determined that while some of these people were in fact terminally ill, many were not. And many, as it turns out, were not even sick, were in pain. Autopsies of several of the people who pushed the button to end their own lives on the Thanatron have shown that they were actually healthy. I offer this simply so that you're aware of it, not to make any statement about the rightness or wrongness of helping these people take their lives. The second, and far more upbeat, is that in addition to being Dr. Death, Jack Kevorkian was a jazz musician and composer. In 1997, he released an album called The Kevorkian Suite, A Very Still Life. Dr. Kevorkian played the flute and organ and was accompanied by a band called the Morpheus Quintet. He also painted, but his paintings tended to be fairly grotesque and surreal. They're on display at the Ariana Gallery in Royal Oak, Michigan, for anyone who wishes to experience something truly troubling. One of them is actually on a heavy metal band cover painting. In summation, love him, hate him, fear his ideas, or embrace them. Dr. Kevorkian was nothing short of a man driven by a quest to fix what he perceived to be a truly broken aspect of American society. He was done a terrible disservice by his short-term pretrial attorney, and as a result, he was unable to use the podium he had gone through so much trouble to obtain. He had to know he would be put on trial for homicide after he operated the machine himself. The only thing that mattered to him was presenting his intentions and making a case that what he did was actually the right thing to do. Being precluded from making those arguments after spending so much time and effort to get that trial must have been devastating. And this is a pretty clear case of the prosecution being handed a silver platter, and they did an admirable job of not screwing it up by doing more than they needed to. But it's not often you get a killer who videotapes his crime, gives the tape to a major news outlet for primetime publication, and then dares the district attorney to charge him. The bottom line here is that while I have my doubts if even a good lawyer like Feger could have won at this trial, having an attorney who understands the defense and the strategy required to make the arguments is essential to any trial. Well, that's the show this time around. A truly bizarre case of one man so desperate to send a message that he aired himself committing what Michigan determined to be murder on 60 Minutes. That is true dedication. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen, and I hope you have now a real sense of just who Dr. Murad Jacob Kevorkian was, what he stood for, and why his fifth trial was so interesting. I'd like to send a special thank you to Evan Goldman for the very considerate and thoughtful note that he mailed me about the show. It really made my entire week, and I very, very, very much appreciate it. Thank you. Until next time, thanks for listening to In Summation, The Final Word. I'm Paul Townsend. You can send any listener feedback to insummationpodcast at gmail.com or look me up on my law firm's website, robertcgottlieblaw.com. If you like the show, hit the subscribe button. You'll automatically get notified when new episodes come. For now, thanks for stopping by, and I hope you'll come back for more.